Michael Vadis, my partner uh, <laughs> uh, in crime and uh, in particular in cybersecurity. Uh, your book actually says that he's the man who brought the word cyber to government uh, when he was working for Jamie Gorelick at the uh, National Security Office that she had in uh, in the deputy's office at uh, Justice, and that he had read, I think, Gibson's book and uh, started using the phrase, and it took over inside the government and only inside the government, so that today, when you talk about cyber, you know you're talking to somebody who's come from government because the people who come from Silicon Valley roll their eyes at cyber <laughs> and say, oh, God, we stopped talking about that in 1997. We can blame Michael Vadis for this uh, two-culture problem? Well, you know, I, I can't reveal sources. He may have been the source for the story that it was Michael Vadis <laughs> that uh, 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 brought cyber. Who knows? And one thing that was fascinating, just stepping back and doing the book, was was realizing the role, the powerful role of movies, fiction, you know, whether it's war games, getting President Reagan after seeing the movie for the first yep. time to ask, can that happen? And hearing, you know what, it could happen and causing the first cyber initiative to uh, William Gibson seeing young kids in the 80s playing video games and thinking, it looks like they're in a different world, a cyber world, and yeah. coining, coining the phrase cyberspace. And I, and I think it's instructive now to look to the movies, to look to science fiction as we try to think what the next threats are going to be and how we can prepare for them. Episode 248 of the Cyber Law Podcast, made possible by, but not endorsed by, Steptoe and Johnson, as my partners keep reminding me. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Today, I'm going to be interviewing John Carlin, former Assistant Attorney General in charge of the National Security Division at Justice and author of a new book, Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global cyber threat, and I have made it my ambition to not ask him questions that he's already been asked. So if you've heard him uh, interviewed on a podcast uh, before, and how could you not, check to see how well I did against uh, the uh, questions you've already heard him answer. Okay, and joining me for the news roundup, uh, Gus Hurwitz from the University of Nebraska, Dr. Megan Reese uh, from R Street Institute, and Nick Weaver from UC Berkeley. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host, the moderator, and the provocateur uh, of today's pro uh, program. So we ought to jump in and talk about some real law and, and really bad law, too. Um, uh, Illinois has a biometric identity privacy uh, uh, law that the courts have been trying to save from itself. And the Illinois Supreme Court finally said, no, you can't do that. Uh, this this law is so bad, it has to be applied as written. At least that's how I read it. Gus, did you uh, take a look at that decision? Uh, yeah, I did. And uh, so the background here is uh, we have uh, this law. It's a, a 2008, I believe, uh, law in Illinois. Uh, biometrics, broadly defined, can only be collected under certain uh, circumstances. You need to have notice. You need to have declaration for how long they'll be kept and what they'll be used uh, and uh, a bunch of stuff like that. And it also includes, really importantly, a private right of action, which is triggered by violating the terms of the law. So there doesn't need to be a data breach. There doesn't need to be any harm. Just you collect someone's fingerprints or their facial scan uh, without telling them or without complying with these various requirements. And you can uh, get sued uh, for a thousand bucks as statutory damages. And over the last couple of years, guess what we've been seeing? A lot of class actions coming up here. A couple other states, uh, Texas, for instance, have somewhat similar laws, but none of them are so stupid as to include this private right of action. They require uh, the uh, state attorney general or someone to uh, enforce uh, or bring the action uh, to enforce the law, the violation. And there's been some discussion in recent years about uh, standing requirements, um, whether or not uh, it's going to be sufficiently tangible uh, damages to uh, survive standing. Um, and the Illinois Supreme Court said in this case brought against Six Flags, uh, a child's biometrics, I think it was, uh, I forget if it was his fingerprints or face uh, was scanned. Finger, fingerprints, um, yeah. Yeah, f fingerprints uh, uh, were uh, scanned as uh, uh, just uh, part of uh, the entry process, um, and his mother brought suit, and the uh, Illinois Supreme Court uh, sustained uh, the suit 
and uh, uh, the damages on the statutory basis alone. So, um, is, if uh, I if I remember right, I mean, this is the, the, this. There's been a lot of litigation here. In in it, a lot of it was in federal court, and the federal courts do have a standing requirement, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. uh, Article Three uh, requires a case or controversy, but state courts often don't. When the federal courts got this, they said, uh, well, you got to have some injury uh, in order to have standing to have a case or controversy, which is an interesting federal doctrine. Uh, I'm not even sure it's right in this context, but uh, it, it's pretty common uh, analysis. And so they, salva they, they saved the case from the law from stupid results by invoking standing. And now the Illinois Supreme Court has basically said, uh, look, it says you can sue if you're aggrieved. That doesn't to us, read like uh, uh, you have to have an injury. You just have to be aggrieved. And uh, God knows in uh, 2019 America, being aggrieved ain't that hard. Yeah. And the federalism concerns are uh, really challenging here. Um, there are companies that don't offer services or products. If you're an online company, a platform, you don't enable uh, certain features in the state of Illinois. Um, so we've got companies that are designing and tailoring their products to behave differently in one state versus other states. And unfortunately, this could be a blueprint moving forward, uh, as you indicate, um, since uh, Spokio, um, the Spokio opinion a couple years ago, there's been a lot of discussion. Uh, so Spokio, uh, uh, U.S. Supreme Court case that really emphasized with a lot of these data and privacy harms, there is a, a concreteness requirement uh, for harm in order to get into a federal court. Um, so if we're pushing these claims or individuals who are concerned about privacy harms are pushing them to uh, state level uh, statutes, we're going to have 50 some statutes uh, for something that really is a federal issue. Yeah, or if, or just not a non-issue. I'm sure that 10 years ago, people might have said, oh, my gosh, collecting people's fingerprints, how creepy and weird. But now, you know, uh, we all provide them to uh, to our phone company uh, or at least to uh, Google or Apple. And uh, no, you, know, you don't to Apple. Well, OK, so you you, you provide it to your phone, uh, but they are still collecting your biometrics, aren't they? The phone is collecting the biometrics, but it only stays within the phone. So it's your device is collecting your biometrics. It is not shared and it is designed not to be shareable. I'm not sure that's going to protect you from this law. It's interesting. The law also applies to, I think, collecting people's photograph because that's a biometric. It's a dumb overwritten law, which other States mostly haven't followed uh, uh, and then enforced with this uh, we will punish you uh, uh, provision guaranteeing a thousand bucks to anybody who can find a lawyer who's willing to sue, which is not hard because if you add up all those thousand bucks, it turns into real money. It's, it's sort of – to my mind, it's an echt example of uh, what's wrong with privacy law. Ten years ago, we were worried about this uh, and now we've gotten a little more used to it and the idea that we're going to punish, let's say, uh, Google uh, to make uh, uh, Nick happier uh, for collecting fingerprints or for collecting uh, photos uh, to use as part of uh, identifiers I, it strikes me as just nutty. I mean, nobody wants to uh, – nobody thinks that should be a violation of a law. And now we've got a statute that basically allows anybody who's mad at you to bring this kind of a lawsuit. If you're in the business of uh, collecting even photographs, I think you ought to take another look at this law. Uh, and uh, certainly if you're using other kind of biometric identifiers, all this is going to probably mean is a proliferation of notice requirements. Uh, but this kid never would have gotten into Six Flags because uh, uh, his parents would have had to agree to his collecting in, in writing to his providing his uh, thumbprint to get in. And since they weren't with him, uh, they would have just uh, turned him away at the uh, at the entry. And I think we can all agree that not getting into Six Flags on demand is a real harm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never been to Six Flags. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm a deprived child. Me neither. Yeah. Speaking of deprived children, Vladimir Putin, he's got to be feeling bad because uh, uh, now uh, other people have discovered that doxing folks in power is uh, fun and easy and uh, they're doing it to him. Uh, Megan, uh, uh, tell us about yeah. denial, denial, distributed, distributed denial of secrets. Dist DDoS. Yes. Of course the name is DDoS. So a 
competing group was founded uh, contrary to WikiLeaks that is deciding to publish Russian secrets. And they are strategically releasing troves of secrets on Russian oligarchs and members of the Russian elite. They're not. They're. It's not as though they're just targeting. No, the no, Russians, no. Right? They're. They're. They. They. They think that WikiLeaks had it right. Right, yes. but did wasn't uh, uh, crazy enough. Well, WikiLeaks was never publishes Russian secrets right. if it could hurt Vladimir Putin in any way. So it's this one weird thing where I'm super torn. I'm like, this is sweet revenge on the Russians, but because I'm generally opposed to massive troves of documents being released like this, I this is not good. But there is that like little bit of me that's like sweet justice. Yes, I, I think that's right. Now, Nick, I think you got quoted in the story. Yeah, I noticed this. that later. Is, is Emma Best a friend of yours, the woman who, uh, one of the co-founders here? No, I just have interacted with her on Twitter. But one thing that should make you feel better, they are not soliciting nor collecting the data new. What they are yeah. doing is taking existing dumps curating them and putting them in one place. So yeah. they're not responsible for the stuff being out there. They're just responsible for knowing that any cryptographic signatures are valid, adding in formats to make it easier to search and putting it in one place. So for people like me who might want to look at uh, dumps on whatever, it gives me a one-stop shopping place to find the stuff that's already out there because okay. let's say the russians do like hacking and doxing each other and we've even turned it into an academic paper yeah I, I they are second only to the folks in the uh persian gulf who have been uh the uae and uh, Qatar, and for all i know the saudis have been also uh, doxing each other uh, and pulling American PR firms into the uh, into the mix, uh, so selectively s releasing hacked materials is now part of the sort of dark side of PR operations mm -hmm. in the United States, as far as I can tell. That will not end well. I'm guessing no. that that's going to turn out <laughs> to generally. be a, a conspiracy charge. Uh, uh, so watch out. Uh, okay. Nick, while while the government was shut down, DHS popped up and produced its first emergency order telling people, uh, telling government agencies to go check to see whether their uh, DNS addresses had been hijacked. Uh, how big a deal was that? And was it really a threat to uh, the civilian side of U.S. government? Yes and yes. So what has been happening is Everything in our computer security really depends on DNS, that is the name to address conversion. And so what attackers would do is compromise the account used to control that, change the DNS entries to point to the bad guy systems, and then the bad guy system can now intercept all web traffic to the domain, whether or not it's encrypted, because they can just get a crypto secret. They can intercept all email to the domain. And so this is a very powerful type of attack. And it's actually hard to catch unless you're specifically looking for it. And probably the best time to have launched this attack against US government computers is, well, when there's this huge shutdown business that is causing half of DHS's staff, and not to mention how many others, to be furloughed. Right, because DHS, even DHS on being on the job, and they, they did have people on the job, wouldn't have helped because it's like the uh, it's somebody in the IT staff of the Interior Department that uh, worries about their DNS, doesn't, isn't it? Yes, and also the other thing is is there's no real good way for DHS to monitor the health of everybody else's DNS in the government until they actually set up some infrastructure. So responding to this attack in the future can be much more effective if DHS sets up some monitoring things and the like. But until that happens, and that's actual significant work, this attack is quite hard to detect, and it is the responsibility of the targeted agencies to detect. So and it wasn't just aimed at uh, U.S. government sites. It was aimed at uh, pretty much anybody they could uh, uh, they could hack. Uh, uh, what should uh, 
listeners who are responsible for security be worrying about? Make sure your GoDaddy account is really secure with a unique password and add in some DNS monitoring where what you do is you look up your own host names on a regular basis off of public DNS servers and make sure nobody is playing games. All right. So that's like a script you ought to run every every, every week, right? Just uh, double check. Uh, sure. Script you ought to run every minute because, <laughs> hey. Yeah, uh, I guess that's right. Okay. You only alert when something changes. Uh, Nick, I saw uh, some discussion that with the shutdown, there was a problem with uh, certificates expiring. Apparently, this has been an ongoing problem, but there was a, a large tranche of them uh, that expired uh, during the shutdown because no one was on hand to uh, uh, renew the uh, certificates. Uh, did that exacerbate these DNS concerns at all, or, or were these uh, standalone issues? They're standalone, but they're not that the expiring certs are kind of a canary in the coal mine saying system abandoned, easy to hack because the, everybody's asleep at the switch. And the other problem is going to be is all the talented people, boy, it's a great opportunity on LinkedIn for private sector recruiters and or uh, intelligence recruiters to try to get a whole bunch of assets in the government right now. Yeah, I think that's right. That, that was a discouraging time if you were in government. Uh, it's one thing to uh, to work for a week or two uh, without uh, knowing when you're going to get paid, but uh, that was that was way longer than most people uh, like to stretch their budget. Right to be forgotten. I I, I feel like the, the the title of this one ought to be "I Told You So." Here is a surgeon in Holland who is disciplined for negligence in treating one of her patients. She, uh, they actually bar her from practice, apparently, for a little bit. She appeals, and, and they, they reinstate her, uh, but they uh, uh, continue some, her on probation. And while that's happening, she goes to uh, Google and says, I have a right to be forgotten uh, because nobody really needs to know what a crappy surgeon I am as the first thing in my uh, uh, search uh, in the search results. And uh, uh, God bless them. The uh, Dutch authorities say, uh, you know, actually, we think this is a, an important thing to uh, uh, for people to know. And, and uh, Google says the same. And some court in the Netherlands says, oh, no, that's got to be forgotten. Uh, uh, you were listed on a site that talks about Dr. Blacklist, and people could get the wrong idea from that, uh, uh, that you should be blacklisted. So I'm going to uh, order it um, withdrawn from Google search terms. And then we're finding out about it now in January of 2019. Apparently, this decision came out in July of last year. And they've been arguing all this time over whether the court could publish its opinion. It's a little clear. But this is such a, a shocking miscarriage of, of justice and a demonstration of Baker's basic law about privacy, uh, which is that privacy law only protects the privileged in the long run because uh, nobody else cares enough to bring these lawsuits uh, uh, long after the uh, ultimate justification for the, the policy has disappeared. See Six Flags. I don't know, Gus. Um, uh, uh, you can hose me down if you want. Uh, no, you you just took the wind out of my sails, Stuart. I was going to say this is even uh, worse than just protecting negligence because the underlying information is all still on the web. It's just not being indexed in this uh, easy-to-find uh, location. So who's going to figure out, hey, this is a doctor I don't want to go to? The folks who are more sophisticated, who have some more time to spend uh, uh, doing their research uh, online, uh, so the unsuspecting folks who are less sophisticated or don't have as many resources, they're more likely to get stuck uh, with this uh, incompetent doctor um, and who has the ability to go through the litigation and the sophistication to go through and avail themselves of the right to be forgotten, the more sophisticated, resource-rich uh, individuals. So this is all about protecting privilege and making sure that the people who need to be have their uh, resources protected uh, have those resources protected. So I'm on Google's side in that one, but I have to say I am not on their side in this latest uh, YouTube policy. 
you know, there's been a lot of controversy over YouTube, which is sort of the social justice uh, um, uh, outpost of uh, Google, uh, 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 taking down conservative sites that for reasons that are not perfectly clear. Uh, they've decided that uh, they're taking too much heat over taking these sites down. Instead, what they're going to start doing is uh, for things that are on the borderline, that is to say that don't violate their guidelines, they're going to just uh, stop recommending them. Their, their algorithm will say, oh, that was a site that uh, might have violated or that somebody reported as possibly violating our uh, terms of service. So uh, even if we decide it doesn't, we can still punish them by making sure that nobody else finds out about their site. That That's how I read their uh, uh, their their policy, and it's pretty close. They say this is this is for things that don't quite cross the line of violating our community guidelines, and we'll start reducing recommendations without telling anyone. As far as I can see, uh, there'll be no transparency to this. Uh, and uh, if you've been uh, throttled by uh, YouTube, you probably won't even know it. Uh, now, Nick, I know you're you're a little more comfortable with this policy, so I'll give you a shot at telling me why I'm wrong. Okay. The problem is, is Google's base recommendation is just kind of this machine learning optimization for engagement. And as a result, it actually is optimization for radicalization, no matter what. So if you want running videos, you get to ultra marathons. If you want Islamic videos, you get to ISIS. You want Hillary Clinton, you get to Pizzagate and QAnon and all that garbage. Yeah, and if you this want Mitt Romney, you apparently add, end up at Prager University, which is absolutely unthinkable for the people in Silicon Valley. It's not that. It really is how do you deal with the radicalization effects of the recommendation algorithm? And they're trying to tamp down on it without just going, you know, I'm not even sure if we can do this properly. But it's a real problem, and it still is. So BuzzFeed did a test on blank browsers, and you get all sorts of crazy stuff. You are literally – you watch a video on Star Wars, and three clicks later, you're at uh, at uh, Pizzagate QAnon about the oncoming arrest of 50,000 deep staters who are going to end up in Guantanamo Bay. So I don't – I don't. I, I'm not going to disagree ludicrous. with you that, 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 that uh, the, the need to continue engagement to keep people clicking, to give them stuff that they say, whoa, what's that? And click on it uh, is a big part of what YouTube wants. They, they want engagement uh, and – Giving somebody something that's just a little further out probably does make sense as an engagement strategy. On the other hand, we're never going to know how this works. You, Google is basically saying, trust us, we'll do the right thing. And I frankly, when it comes to conservative speech, I have zero faith in uh, YouTube's uh, willingness to play it straight. Except that we have already seen that before it's a black box machine learning algorithm where even Google doesn't know what's going on and the results have been catastrophic for everybody but ISIS recruiters. <laughs> well, I, oh yeah, it was pretty bad for uh, for Prager because they got shut down. Uh, um, yeah, I, 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 I hear you. I think this is part of the problem. The It makes sense to say... We don't like the results our algorithm are producing and the social results, and everybody can agree that, that pushing everybody to the extremes is not such a great idea. On the other hand, the idea of turning over that algorithm to people whose judgment is just so demonstrably distorted by where they live uh, strikes me as equally bad policy. And the question then is, if you don't trust the people who are writing this algorithm – and yet there's only one YouTube, what do you do about it? Uh, I'll, I'll jump in with the intermediate perspective, uh, which is I'm, of course, a big trust the market kind of guy. And I'd say YouTube currently is not producing good results. Uh, there are problems with what they're doing right now. And I think that we absolutely should uh, tell them, hey, experiment, try something different. And we need to give them the space and opportunity to try something different. And if the results are problematic, and the challenge is knowing are the results problematic, um, but if the results are problematic, then that's when they get punished. I don't think we can uh, say, hey, we've got problems right now. We're not going to let you experiment. We're going to come down with a regulatory solution or something else. I think we should embrace the market-based experimental approach. Hello, Vimeo. 
All right, I, well, which is, I, I think, sort of the fact that they uh, there's so little uh, name recognition for, for YouTube's uh, principal competitor tells us there's something wrong with the way the market's working here, and I, I, I'm not sure what I can say about it. Network effects, uh, first mover advantage, something uh, has made it awfully easy for YouTube to say, you know, we don't really care what you think because you're not going to go anywhere else anyway. I can say one thing. There is no libertarian solution to a market failure. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> Last topic, I just couldn't resist this uh, uh, because it, it it is a combination of the Chinese use of all of the tools that Silicon Valley and uh, Shenzhen have given them for control with the prospect of yet more Twitter mobbing, uh, but this time in real life. Uh, there's an app that's been created in China that tells you if you are near somebody with a really bad social credit score so that you can shame them in person. You know that Twitter is going to do this next. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, and those, those kids from Covington uh, will never be able to go anywhere else with or without their MAGA hats. I just, when I read this story, I just kept thinking that the creators of it had been watching all the dystopian movies and reading all the dystopian novels, but relating to the wrong people in the book. Yes, it's like it's like it's like the guys who designed that little um, cute little delivery wagon that uh -huh. Amazon says it's going to be using. It's an autonomous vehicle that wanders around your neighborhood to deliver your burritos, uh, and it looks exactly like a Star Wars robot. Yep. Uh, uh, and so, yes, uh, it, it turns out that it's not just cool science fiction that uh, influences designers, but dystopian science <laughs> dystopian fiction as well. Science yeah. fiction. All right. Uh, Better than the auto security guard that looked like Daleks. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, those I, guys bring me so much joy, though. <laughs> uh, well, I, and, and I think the Russians like them so much that they put a guy in a suit that looked like one. <laughs> Oh, that was a good one. That so, yeah, here's one. our robot. Okay, let's go to our interview, which is a little long, so I want to uh, get to it as quickly as I can. Uh, okay, our interview today is with John Carlin, uh, former assistant attorney general for the National Security Division at the Justice Department, an old friend and ally. We have worked to similar purpose, uh, uh, John inside the government mostly and me outside the government. Uh, uh, and John has written a, um, a fine new book called Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat about his time in government and the future. Um, John, I, I, it's a pleasure to have you here. I will observe that you've really hit every podcast possible. Uh, <laughs> Not yet, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this was this, the dream. Uh, <laughs> this, this is the hat trick. Today's then. the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I'm going to try to ask you some questions that I have, since I've listened to many of the uh, interviews, I'm going to try to drive you deeper on a few of these topics. Uh, it's a great book. People should buy it. People should read it. Uh, but even if you don't read it, you should buy it. Uh, and uh, what's interesting about it is you were inside while I, I could just come out and been working cyber uh, at DHS. Uh, uh, and so I was deeply invested in the success of the government's efforts against the cyber espionage threat. Uh, and so I watched a lot of what you're doing from the outside. And now this is my chance to ask you what was really going on uh, inside. Uh, so let me start right there. You spend a lot of time in the book about building the framework for what finally happened uh, at NSD when you were in charge. And part of it, uh, you credit the um, Bush administration in its last year or so is setting up a comprehensive uh, computer security uh, initiative and really proposing a lot of effort uh, and dividing up the world of cybersecurity among NSA and DHS and uh, Justice FBI. And then the Obama administration comes in. It, the president has said it's going to be a really high priority. Not much happens, at least from the point of view of the Justice Department, until 2014. There's a long lag time there. And I, and, and I guess my first question is, 
what's going on? You were career, uh, so you had seen the Justice Department. You were already deep into this stuff. Uh, and uh, Justice had a lot to offer, and the FBI had a lot to offer. And yet uh, it seemed like the administration was pretty slow to figure out what it wanted to do, the Obama administration. Yeah, it, it, probably a couple things going on. One is a lesson and in, in a story I tell in the book of, that occurs again and again with transitions uh, to new administrations. And it seems to particularly occur when it comes to cyber issues, which is there's so much else going on uh, that the work pauses. Yeah, this is Other, important but not urgent, right? Not urgent, right. There's some crisis of the day and they're real they're, they are real crises, whether it's terrorism or others and I was uh, disappointed to see great people in place, but some of the apparatus that was put in place I think to ensure that there was continued attention for a transition from uh, administration to administration now seems to have been taken down in the current administration. When I say that I mean Having someone dedicated within the national security staff who focuses on this is the job that Lisa Monaco had, uh, which no longer exists, right? It is both Lisa Monaco's uh, old job, which no longer exists, and then Rob Joyce's old job in this administration, Michael Daniel before him, uh, that reported to that position that focused exclusively on cyber. So you got rid of both. So let me let me (laughs) let me offer a, a partial defense of this. But first, every president gets the White House he deserves because it's all organized around him. And um, it isn't clear to me that if you have a mission in government uh, uh, like DHS for cybersecurity or the FBI for law enforcement that you're benefited by a lot of attention from the White House staff. <laughs> Spoken as like a true member of one of the departments. <laughs> that, <laughs> yes. uh, but I, I, so I think there's an element of truth to that. But also, when it comes to certain uh, certain areas like improving the defensive readiness of departments, which are not sexy, which are not going to get the attention of cabinet secretaries, which do not get val- uh, valuable budget dollars or hill attention because you're not building something new. This is the basic blocking and tackling of cybersecurity. And you're keeping track, and in the Obama administration really occurred towards the end, this idea of a sprint towards cybersecurity right. uh, uh, readiness. I don't think that's occurring uh, right now. There's no one keeping There's tabs. nobody hold, holding <laughs> the, uh, the cabinet department's feet to the fire on this issue. Look, I see NSC and the White House staff as having two principal roles apart apart from you know uh, serving the president in whatever capacity the president wants to be served but they hold the department's feet to the fire to make them do things that the department's know they should do but don't really want to do, don't want to do on the schedule that's been set. And so NSC nags them and uh, draws up uh, lists of uh, deadlines for them for various things and calls them into account. Uh, so that, that yeah, I agree with you. That's There's not a lot of that happening. Uh, and, you know, we didn't love it when we were in the departments. And the other thing and the probably more important part of it is Every department, every agency has stuff that they think is their core job, right? This is this is what I join government to do. I am gonna, you know, I'm gonna really excel at this. And then there's stuff that they know they should do, but it isn't their core job, and it requires them to coordinate with people in some other agency that they mostly hate, and so. They just stay away from that because it's it's all conflict and no fun, uh, and so. Things fall between the cracks, uh, and that I think you, you know you need a coordinating agency to make that work. I think that's right on both fronts, and I worry currently. And we've seen this we've seen this story before, which is there isn't uh, you know the Office of per- Personnel Management fades in people hack fades in people's minds. It was because of that hack that the president tried twice to convene cabinet meetings, and the Attorney General, for instance, set me. And our chief information officer for the Department of Justice, most cabinet officers did the same. And it was the third meeting where Lisa Monaco actually, along with the chief of staff to the president, said, you can bring whoever you want. But as the cabinet secretary, you have to come and be accountable and understand uh, what is often you may think of as in cyberspeak. But it has to be explained to you in a way that you understand. So you're setting So I can fire you if you screw up. (laughs) That's the hold feet to the fire, right? I I think that's, you know. (laughs) 
But look, this was the Obama administration, which was notorious for having deputies meetings from nine to five uh, every day. <laughs> uh, and so at some point, people said, you know, I'm the deputy secretary. I can't do my job and go to all those damn meetings. And they started sending more and more junior people. I spent a lot of time in uh, meetings of the Bush administration, but it got a lot worse under Obama. And so you, know, you can understand why they would have had to be actually called. Yeah. So you know, there could be a happy medium somewhere in there, but that that solution of having someone drive the uh, the unsexy uh, fix it, whether it's uh, having centralized uh, servers so you know where your information is or deciding where your data is on the system or uh, making sure that your se your systems are segmented. It's making sure that that got done. That's exactly where we ended up at the end of the Bush administration, yeah. right? And similarly, it took a concerted drive from the White House with support of the director of national intelligence at the time who made it a real priority to say we need concrete items that have to get done and then we're going to keep, hold you to account whether you've done the task. And to your second point about driving concerted action even when departments don't want to play, one of the things I think we, we've learned, this under this administration, there's been enormously successful work done by the National Security Division, by the prosecutors, agents, and intelligence uh, and analysts. And the Treasury Department uh, and coordinated work with Treasury and, and Commerce and NSD. It's remarkable. Well, yeah, actually, that's exactly where I was going to say coordinated with Commerce. But when you look at what's occurring with China in particular, there have been these really detailed cases, including catching one of the spy masters when they travel overseas right. from MSS. Uh, prosecuting them, bringing them to the United States for prosecution, an unprecedented success. The creative use of the designation of an entity through the Commerce Department, yep. which was part of the strategy that we had put in place uh, before, but we hadn't seen executed outside of the world of exports. So this is the first time we're really linked to intellectual property. But to your uh, to your to your point, and I think this too could be driven uh, driven better as a strategy if there was someone pushing it. From the White House, where is Treasury when it comes to China? Wh what about the executive order that uh, one Stuart Baker used to call the April Fool's order because it hadn't been used yet? Well, it still hasn't been used when it comes to Chinese economic yeah. espionage. I'm, I'm delighted that that <laughs> actually got enough under your, the government's skin that you remember it. <laughs> well, I, you know, so I think I can tell this now because it comes out in the book. I liked it because it was a push. To, it was a push. To <laughs> of course, the I, I, order I, 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 I'm well aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but 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 now I mean it's called for again a little bit. To say where's Treasury? So you have this concert, what looks like a concerted strategy, and we have countries as yeah. small as Poland taking enormously and unprecedented provocative steps when they catch a, a, a agents inside their right. country. There's this beautiful tool of the executive order that says not only can you sanction the person stealing it, but you can go after the recipient of the stolen intellectual property. My clients right. now in private practice who are victims are saying, I would come in in a heartbeat if I thought the person who stole it would pay a real consequence. We haven't seen it used. So yeah, I'm hoping to see that. Uh, <laughs> and, and a good, good question. Uh, there was an effort uh, to punish the Chinese steel industry for the attacks on first the U.S. steel industry and then on the lawyers for the U.S. steel industry. And there was a suggestion that the ITC should actually exclude their products because uh, they were tainted by this unfair practice. And that just sort of disappeared, if I remember right. We haven't seen uh, real follow through on that. And that dates back to the first case that we brought in 2014, the People's Liberation Army Unit 61398 case. That, if you recall, targeted not just the steel industry, but labor. Yes, in the that's steel. right. The, the, and what the, the, they were the targeting, yes. the steel workers, the reason they targeted them was because they were encouraging an, a, a, an unfair trade uh, retaliatory suit against uh, suit against China. So it's I, – I, I I'm not sure there's a, a good answer. I'd be curious what it is. Like, how does the strategy fit in so place? Here's, here's the problem as I see it. The treasury is always a little – anxious about the relationship with China, especially given the amount of U.S. debt that they hold uh, and their sense that they are the keepers of free trade principles for all industries except banks. And so 
they're always a little conflicted over this, uh, although they've become less conflicted as they've gotten this bigger role in, in national security. So maybe the, it's fear of consequences and that's getting, at least at the secretarial level, a lot of attention. I think that sounds plausible and makes sense with where they, they sit institutionally. I'll say, you know, one of the uh, stories that we tell in the book is about how getting the, the different departments and agencies all for uh, different reasons, we're cautious about the idea of bringing a case. Yes, yeah, so I must, this, this, I'd want to hear this uh, a, a little. At some point, I mean, it's tricky for justice. You're not supposed to get permission to bring lawsuits or to bring prosecutions, if I understand it. And at, at the same time, it would be crazy for you not to have uh, a united government before you uh, brought the indictment. So. You came up with the idea of indicting these guys, uh, perfectly sensible, uh, but novel, uh, and you know, doing something for the first time in government is extraordinarily difficult. My hat is off to you. How did you start that process? How did you, you know, recognizing that the interagency was not going to be your friend, uh, what did you do to uh, prepare the battlefield? It's interesting, right? So. And because uh, people often focus on the policy, but there also were some core just institutional changes that we needed to be to make. And I think it came from a change somewhat of mindset. You know, when I was prosecuting these cases as a line prosecutor, I worked only with the criminal side of the FBI. And there was another squad that did intelligence. And if someone switched squads, they just but They disappeared. just disappeared into the skiff and you exactly. never saw them again. Never saw them again. So when I went over to FBI and realized, boy, there's amazing work being done on the intelligence side. And what China in particular is doing when it comes to economic espionage makes the criminal cases that I've been working on pale in comparison. What are, what are we doing about it? Part of that st structural change came, well, why aren't we doing anything about it? And the answer uh, wasn't bad motive. It's that on the intelligence side of the house. Oh, intelligence guys don't usually bring cases. And it's partly they were thinking, and there was a reason for that, right? It's just right. the, the threats have changed. So when it was the Cold War, revealing a source or method might not be the best strategy for the United States. Right. So instead, like we showed with the Russian uh, illegal case that became the show of the Americans, it, it, you, could, you could watch them for 15, 20 years as they expend resources here in the United States. You don't disrupt so they don't realize you're watching. You and feed it tells you a lot about their, their tradecraft trade craft. and uh, maybe they'll disclose to you somebody else that you could watch. Yeah, a, 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 But in this case, they were raping and pillaging American companies of their technology in ways that were unrecoverable. Uh, so, okay. So, you, so you have to do that shift, and part of that shift then means doing on scale what happened for me, which is making sure that there were prosecutors all across the country in every U.S. attorney's office who, just like they did on terrorism, which was the whole reason the National Security Division was created, are getting access to what's happening on the intelligence side of the house so they can think if they can come up with a creative solution. And in order to do that, you have to train them on how to handle classified information, Changed uh, the FBI. So your first effort share. was basically to, to mobilize the institution, and since large chunks of the real heart of the department are out in the U.S. attorney's offices, you needed those U.S. attorneys saying, "Hey, I can bring this case," uh, and then coming to Washington to say, "Hey, look at the case that I've got," uh, as opposed to you kind of trying to peddle a case to them. It's, and unleash the kind of creativity of all these prosecutors uh, across the country. And one thing you appreciate, but maybe some listeners don't, is it seems like these massive, huge institutions and thousands of people, but some of the key and best changes, they're just a couple of people. So this case, when we started, we had no budget for re reorganizing and putting right. in a cyber. It was, a, it was another period like we are now where the government was shut down, was occurring during yep. this period. So, you know, we stuck guys basically in a supply closet who we flew in from some U.S. attorney's offices and said, see if you can access this trove that's been collected and come up with something new. And then you had to find a U.S. attorney who was willing to do it, knowing that it had never happened before and it was going to take a lot of resources. And, and the, the U.S. attorney for Pittsburgh basically said, yeah, I'll take it on. Dave um, Hickton. He yeah. said, you know, screw it. Uh, and we, we had talked to a couple other U.S. attorneys and they, for good reasons, you know, that resources were tight. They didn't want to do it. And they, they said, I'm going to give it, uh, give it a shot. And he happened to also be located with 
some of the best uh, cyber agents in the FBI were out of the Pittsburgh office. Is like, that because of Carnegie Mellon and the CERT? It's a combination, I think, of Carnegie Mellon, uh, CERT. There's a program out of Pittsburgh, the National Cyber Forensic Training Alliance, mm -hmm. or NCFTA, that works with industry that it developed over the years. And, uh, you know, it all it takes is one agent. <laughs> and there yes. were a couple really good agents who just loved being in Pittsburgh. And we tried to move them, actually. They were so good. We wanted to bring them to headquarters. And they just, they said, you know, basically, uh, it's Pittsburgh or else I'm out. And so we, they stayed in Pittsburgh. That's interesting. Is, is that still true? You still think that uh, if new cases are going to be pioneered, they're likely to be pioneered out of Pittsburgh? I think there's still a, a cadre of really excellent agents in Pittsburgh. If you look across the book, it's a, a theme of some of the best cases. They all happen to be out of Pittsburgh. One of the key agents who I think is phenomenal just retired, uh, Keith Malarski, uh, and has entered into the, the private realm that was behind so many of the great criminal cases, Game Over, uh, Zeus, the, this epic disruption of a botnet that did everything from taking naked photographs of Miss America, somehow that got right. more media attention, to <laughs> using massive ransomware uh, cam campaigns and, and theft of theft of funds. So yeah, so they uh, took the case, and then you, you had to um, you know convince convince them that at the end of the day there was going to be a would case. be able to bring a case, right. and then the next step was the intelligence agencies, and so because we oh, need who were to probably of mixed views about this. Yes, we ought to do something because whatever we're doing now isn't working, uh, but not with our intelligence. And, and you know, even if it's not there... But for God's sake, you know, I, I, you, the Mandiant Report, which basically said, hey, look at these guys and here's pictures of their girlfriends and uh, here's their uh, blog posts. Uh, at that point... Uh, it's sort of embarrassing to say, oh, yeah, that's all classified. We, you know, we were already well along with the investigation and thinking we'd have a prosecutable case when the Mandiant uh, report hits. And, you know, we didn't tell them to hold it. Um, <laughs> no. But it's up to them ultimately, and it's another victim. But I also think the leadership of uh, – you know, kudos to the leadership of the – Key agencies at the time, Chris Inglis, uh, Rick Leggett, who was over at the Director of National Intelligence, who said, this will, this will make our lives harder. This will improve tradecraft. But we're seeing, you know, better than anyone else, we're the ones collecting on it, how much harm, as you put it, it's doing day in, day out to American companies. And what we're doing now isn't working. So let's give it a shot. Okay. So now you've got two big chunks uh, uh, lined up more or less for doing this. I'm guessing State Department, traditional National Security Council types think we bring a prosecution, God only knows what could happen, but uh, once we've launched, we can't take it back and we could be diving into a tar pit. Uh, so how do you start moving those guys? There was a parade of horribles. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> that were that were rolled out. So partly it's uh, laying out the facts, right, so that uh, that folks get a sense of what the amount of damage that's currently being caused. And another change that took time took good relations of U.S. attorneys and others in the field talking to the companies that they know so well was to convince corporate America that. You're not going to be in the in the black forever, you know. And I remember I tell a story in the book of meeting with a general counsel who literally had gamed out. Okay, for five more years, essentially, we're going to be in the black, and then and we're going to be gone. We're going to be gone, and well, then we'll come complain. And they were frustrated, but they said, you know, it's too the 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 interim profits are too great. And so what we started seeing is I, I have, I have told, always suspected that that was Nortel's view, and they they took it right off the cliff. They made a lot of money, and then they went belly up because they were totally penetrated. And you've seen it. The story again and again, right, was sector, sector after sector. So it helped that the victims were, were saying, do something and yeah. get starting to send that, send that demand signal. And that, that helps move the economic agencies yes. who might otherwise be loath to do something like commerce. Um, having uh, Talking to Homeland um, who had the responsibility of hearing from uh, uh, victims? Who should have been automatically on your side? I would have thought. I mean, the, the, there's no there's no institutional uh, uh, ox that's gored by bringing the prosecution, and um, they they had to be frustrated by the fact that they weren't going to be able to protect their way out of the problem. So there the, there had to be other consequences. And so then you have um, ultimately. 
You also have the uh, the arrow in the quiver. It's the Justice Department's prosecution. We filed the oh, facts and evidence okay. where they're going to go, so and ultimately it's the Attorney point, General's decision whether or not to bring the case. So the real question is so how I'm are you going to manage the consequences? I'm just here to get your advice. I certainly don't want to screw things up unnecessarily, but this case is ours to bring if we choose to. And, of course, that's a – Half a bluff, at least, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but a nice one to be able to send. So you you took very early on the, the position that you were trying to avoid consequences that were unnecessary, as opposed to giving state the veto. And responsibly, you I mean you should do that, right? With the national security case that yes. caused consequences, like we've done with espionage cases. You don't want to arrest someone out of the blue. It might cause harm to American citizens overseas or, or diplomatic consequences. But it's different than saying, uh, may I? It, it's, it's saying, how, how, do you, how do you plan for it? And also, the, the Obama administration at that time, uh, the national security advisor, when we began the case, had really made the theft of intellectual property a priority. It appeared in the president's State of the Union address. He raised it one-on-one -on -one with his counterpart in China to the point where I think it, it became an irritant to the relationship because the, the, uh, the president kept right. raising it with his, with his counterpart. So it was consistent with that strategy and you could point to that when people talked about uh, oh, and that, sure, that, it was already part of the uh, international dialogue and this was, this was a pain point that, that he was happy to, uh, to raise. Okay, so now at, at some point you whittled down the opposition, probably never gotten to the point where people say, oh, yeah, okay, we think it's a great idea. At what point do you just say, okay, we've heard everything and we're going to pull the trigger? Well, really, we did. Um, I think you're right. There were many people uh, towards the end who who strongly advocated that that we need to do it and we need to do it. Uh, the time is right. We, we, mm -hmm. need to, we need to do it now. And so I think ultimately we were, we were there. I mean, there's some who had their doubts, right. no doubt about the strategy. Okay. And registered enough, uh, <laughs> enough doubts that if it turned out badly, their <laughs> memoirs would show that they were right and you were wrong. Uh, okay, it worked out well. It potentially, you know, for a time, it seemed to have a real impact, much bigger impact than many people expected. Uh, uh, whether that's continued, probably not. Uh, so it was in part the fact that the president was behind the case uh, as was that was as important as the fact of the case. I think it was a couple. Yeah, I think absolutely. And then there were a couple other cases that people didn't know about. So one, China knew, but the public did not. At the time, we were taking a lot of criticism for this is name and shame. You've indicted these five members, but they're never going to see a jail cell. We actually had arrested a Chinese citizen, Su Bin, who was being yes, held by right. the Canadians under U.S. process. We were keeping quiet about it to not interfere with the extradition. It wasn't directly tied into this, but it was. It showed that, that, that the long arm of U.S. law enforcement was longer than a lot of people thought. Yeah, and he was arrested for a conspiracy with, with Chinese intelligence operatives. Yep. It just wasn't getting attention. Um, and it was frustrating because the reporter would say, you never arrest someone. And I know we have arrested someone, but you can't say it because you don't want to interfere with the case. So I think that influenced their thinking as well. And then finally, the creation of the new executive order on sanctions and their absolute belief that we were about to use that executive order and sanction some of the recipient companies that caused Xi to come come to the table and reach reach an agreement that changed conduct. See, for where you might impose 25% tariffs on Chinese imports. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So here, let me ask you a couple of other questions that are I was struck by. You talk about how the chief of staff of uh, the Bush administration, the Bush White House, calls the chief of staff of the uh, Obama campaign in 2008 and says, you guys are penetrated. You need to, to, to know that. You need to uh, take action. And uh, Lisa Monaco, I think, calls their chief uh, foreign affairs person and says the same thing. It's a big deal and it uh, gets t attention from the uh, campaign. How is it that eight years later, the people who got that message managed to have some low-level FBI agent make a couple of calls and get put off by the IT guy at the DNC? What happened uh, to the notion that this is an important thing to, to tell the campaigns about? 
Yeah, it is. So the story is the first time you said it was career official. I didn't know people in either of the campaigns. First time I met someone from the Obama campaign and the McCain campaign was right. when we went to tell each of them. Yeah, yeah, uh, back to back meetings. BFG, <laughs> I, 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 and you guys, yeah. uh, it was perfectly responsible and uh, something that should have happened. And I don't understand what happened in 2016 when uh, the FBI just let itself be put off and let it go. It was interesting. So when in the first um, iteration, really we were, you know, our assessment was that they were, that they were penetrated, but they were penetrated for more traditional intelligence purposes right. rather than active measures. That someone was going to use the uh, the information to cause harm. And uh, the real concerns when we learned about it from the perspective of National Security Division, anyway, because we lived so much through the North Korean attack on Sony, we'd right. seen a, a nation state use this tradecraft before that we really needed to, to get out, do something, uh, make it public and do something in, in response. It was consistent with what we had at that point already done with China. We had done it with North Korea when it came to Sony and we had done it with Iran when it came to their distributed yeah. denial of service attacks in the financial sector and the Bowman Dam. And we were looking for a, a Russia a Russia case uh, one to bring. There's some we were working on that got ended up being brought later. But here you have this this penetration, and, it, and from that perspective, now I see that there are more there are more complicated counter arguments, such as I think there was real concern what they want to do in large part is undermine confidence in democracy. It's democracy sure. that they hate, and so I, if you I, make I, it public, I, 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 do you help? Yeah, but the, you don't even have to make it public. You know, it doesn't look as though anybody in the White House. It's not like they didn't know these people. They knew them all. Uh, you would have thought somebody, Lisa Monaco, would have called the candidate and said to, to Clinton, uh, "You guys are penetrated, and you need to do something." Uh, but it, it's almost as though some nobody thought it was their job, except the FBI, and the FBI thought they could do it in channels. Yeah, uh, and that's interesting in some of which I've read about now what happened in the early parts of that case. I don't know that anyone knew early on. Uh, How bad it was or it, what it was going to be. Yeah, and that they were um, doing the communication attempts because it wouldn't be – the FBI wouldn't necessarily tell the White House or the Department of Justice uh. before they go and form a, a victim – and there were many victims, as you know, throughout okay, Congress, nonprofits, yes. right. and others. And so then this was later, a big deal in 2008 because it was new and got a lot of attention. By 2016, the FBI has a playbook for telling people you've been penetrated to. And they're saying to the White House, yeah, we got it. And so it just gets handled the way they handle uh, you know, the uh, intrusion into a milk processing plant in the Middle West. That's right. I wonder about the early, yeah, yeah, the early stages in terms of notification. Later, when it gets attention, then you have the harder, I think, policy conversations on on what to do about it. Okay, so now I have two <laughs> personal questions. Michael Vadis, my partner uh, <laughs> uh, in crime and uh, uh, in my, uh, in particular, in cybersecurity. Uh, your book actually says that he's the man who brought the word cyber to government uh, when he was working for Jamie Gorelick at the uh, National Security Office that she had in uh, in the deputy's office at uh, Justice, and that he had read, I think, Gibson's book and uh, started using the phrase, and it took over inside the government and only inside the government, so that today, when you talk about cyber, you know you're talking to somebody who's come from government because the people who come from Silicon Valley roll their eyes at cyber <laughs> and say, oh, God, we stopped talking about that in 1997. We can blame Michael Vadis for this uh, two-culture problem? Well, you know, I, I can't reveal sources. He may have been the source for the story that it was Michael Vadis <laughs> that uh, 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 brought cyber. Who knows? But, you know, it's interesting. In the popular imagination, it certainly is cyber. Yeah. Right, and so, and one thing that's I, no, I think actually the, <laughs> this is one where the Beltway view and the Beltway usage has seeped out into the rest of America, and it's only like Silicon Valley that sort of deliberately rolls its eyes and and says, "Boy, you know, hackers were originally supposed to be good people who uh, were uh, uh, creative in their use of technology." You know, the same the same people who say that say you can't call it cyber. 
The, uh, and we tell some of the story. It's not untrue about the you know derivation of the of the word hacker, but yeah, the, the, the popular imagination tourist change. And one thing that was fascinating, just stepping back and doing the book, was was realizing the role, the powerful role of movies, fiction. You know, whether it's war games, getting President Reagan after seeing the movie for the first yep. time to ask, "Can that happen?" and hearing, "You know what, it could happen," and causing the first cyber initiative to. Uh, William Gibson seeing young kids in the 80s playing video games and thinking it looks like they're in a different world, a cyber world, and yeah. coining, coining the phrase cyber, uh, cyberspace. And I, I think it's instructive now to look to the movies, to look to science fiction as we try to think what the next threats are going to be and how we can prepare for them. The other uh, matter of personal interest, uh, I served on the Rob Silberman Commission, helped write the report that said, you know, everybody's been reorganized for the fight against terrorism except the Justice Department, which doesn't even have a national security division. They've got a piece of the criminal division. Uh, and we said there really ought to be a national security division, kind of uh, remarkably. Uh, and it was a bitter fight. You were in Krim, I think, at the time, weren't you? Uh, I, and Krim did not like the idea at all and fought it hard. Uh, only the fact that Judge Silberman is a master of uh, uh, maneuver on these issues uh, <laughs> managed to uh, uh, to produce the change. Uh, but now I think there's there there's almost no one who would say we don't need a national security division. And one of the you know great credit in terms of pivoting to hit the cyber threats, and it was yes. one of the core changes. Uh, we made when I was there was to really focus on counterintelligence and export, not traditional espionage. So cyber threats, export, the use of uh, the tools you have to review foreign investments. Yeah, you got CFIUS. Uh, you're a, a major hawk in, uh, <laughs> on security in CFIUS. And the um, and I will say, and it's sort of the story I tell. Great credit to some of the folks in the criminal division: John Lynch, the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section. It could have been a, one of these turf battles that really slowed down the ability to bring the case. Instead, they were the ones who taught the national security prosecutors about the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, about the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. They helped give advice and guidance that in order to bring these cases and share expertise. And similarly, the U.S. attorney uh, community, whether it's Dave Hickton bringing the case or Jenny Durkin, who is the lead um, for the subcommittee, that was working on computer crime, saying this is this is a good idea, even if it results in we ha in more uh, centralization and mother may eyes to justice. Never, uh, you know, as, as someone who used to be on the line, the favorite thing for a line uh, prosecutor, and we really couldn't have done it unless those folks believed too that this was an important mission, and the Justice Department could do more when it came to Russia, North Korea, Iran, China, to nation state threats. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a great book. I'm going to ask you now awkward questions about uh, <laughs> uh, people who came after you. Uh, you left the end of the Obama administration. Uh, uh, the, uh, the transition to the Trump administration was characterized by leaks of FISA applications, uh, by uh, um, ultimately the opening of a counterintelligence uh, investigation against the, naming the president as the subject, by exchanges between the outgoing CIA director uh, and the administration that are poisonous in their vituperation. Uh, and you have not participated in any of the um, the, the trashing of the uh, new administration. Could we have avoided some of this? Were you well? Let me let me start. Were you surprised that the president might have been named as a counterintelligence target? You know, without going into too much detail, there. Of course, I mean it's shocking that the president. The, the of question the United would be asked. That, right. that the question would need to be asked. Um, based on what facts on the other or hand, we're seeing, what do you gain by designating him as a counterintelligence subject? There's no, they're not going to put a FISA tap on his phone, so they didn't need the extra authorities. You kind of wonder why they bothered, except that they were really, really mad that they just lost their director. Well, I'd, I'd just be completely guessing from the outside based on, okay. on public, I'm, I'm, uh, public gonna, reporting on what, <laughs> what um, happened or not. But I, I will say uh, I think it's important in a time where people – Justice Department's been attacked in a way that hasn't been before the, um, the role of an independent Justice Department or FBI, the concept that they don't act at the political direction but they have a degree of independence that's partly cultural – 
and partly legal in terms of how mm-hmm. it's protected. I think one of the places where that's really uh, – you've seen that. I'm proud of it. They're doing their mission of protecting us against terrorists and spies is the National Security Division. Uh, my successor, uh, John Demers, the uh, team that is still in place that it's are the, currently, it's, it's, by the way, working without pay uh, yes. <laughs> to do this, which also is, is, right. is appalling. But, you know, and you've been in there. there. There's just a ton of folks that if you saw what they did day in day, every American would be so, so proud to call them their own. Right. Um, because they they work. They're dedicated on mission. They don't give a, uh, a darn about uh, about politics. And they're out there churning away on really hard problems that require whether it's tracking down that intelligent foreign intelligence operative and getting them to move across countries so you can capture them and extradite them looking at the bits and bytes to figure out what nation states are doing or hold Russia responsible for something like not Petya and that that group continues to do their job so John we could spend all day I love this uh, stuff you did a wonderful job but uh, uh, running NSD uh, a, and making it an institution that we can all be proud of uh, so congratulations uh, thanks for the book dawn of the code war uh, uh, it's a uh, terrific read uh, and uh, a, and it has enough interagency drama that uh, even us inside the beltway fans uh, <laughs> uh, can enjoy it uh, uh, so thanks for coming in to talk to us thank you sir Okay, thanks to John Carlin. Uh, also to our Roundup uh, team, Gus Hurwitz, Dr. Megan Reese, and Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 248 of the Cyber Law Podcast, made possible, but as my partners keep reminding me, definitely not endorsed by Steptoe and Johnson or its clients. Uh, uh, please don't forget, uh, um, if you suggest an interview guest, we can send you a, a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Just send those uh, recommendations to Cyber Law Podcast at steptoe.com. Follow me at Twitter. And when I'm really doing everything I should, uh, I will uh, post the stories I'm thinking about covering uh, so that you can comment on them. I didn't do that this week, but you know, uh, about half the time I'll do it. Please rate the show. Leave us a review. iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Pocket Cast, wherever you go uh, uh, to get your uh, podcasts. Uh, it helps to have a review. Show credits, uh, Lori Hall and Christy Jorge are the producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, the host and provocateur. And we hope you'll join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.